Turn with me in the Holy Scriptures this morning to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 15. We'll read the chapter in its entirety. My text this morning is the 16th verse. The Word of God at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you, Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me, before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, 
he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. There ends our reading of God's word this morning. May the Lord add his blessing to our reading of the Holy Scripture. I call your attention to Jesus' word in verse 16. I'll focus this morning especially on the first part of the verse, but we'll say something about the last part. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. That some men are saved and others are not saved is due to the sovereign will of God. God determines who will be saved? And God determines who will not be saved. There are some men, women, and children whom it is God's will not to save, but to lead in their sin and in their unbelief. While there are also those whom it is God's will to save, to deliver them from their sin, the guilt and power of their sin, to work faith in them, faith in the Savior, God's own Son, Jesus Christ, the one who is speaking the words of our text this morning. This truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation we often describe as predestination. Predestination. God determines the destiny of all men beforehand, predestination. This is the truth that Calvinism proclaims and confesses. To be a Calvinist is to confess the truth of sovereign predestination. And if there is somebody who claims to be a Calvinist but rejects the teaching of predestination or in one way or another subverts or compromises the truth of predestination, that person shows by that very fact that they are not Calvinists. We are Calvinists. We are not Calvinists because we are the follower of a man. The man John Calvin. To follow a man is schism. And to follow a man is destructive to one's salvation. We do not follow a man. We follow his teaching. His teaching as it is grounded clearly in sacred scripture. Reformed churches, Calvinists, subscribe to double predestination. That is, not only election, 
but also reprobation. Both are taught clearly in our text this morning. In the text, Jesus teaches the truth of predestination. In the text, Jesus makes clear that predestination is double predestination. And in the text, he makes clear that there is not only election, but also reprobation. Let's consider Jesus' words this morning under the theme, Chosen by Christ. Chosen by Christ. Let's notice three things together. First of all, that this is a divine choosing. Secondly, that this is an unconditional choosing. And finally, that this is a purposeful choosing. And that's the last part of the text that we'll not dwell in in detail, but nevertheless mention, and that has to do with the bearing of fruit. In the text, Jesus teaches that there are some men who have been chosen and ordained by God. He says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That Christ and the God and Father of Jesus Christ have chosen and ordained some men is election. That's the word that we usually use. You may read the text that way, and you do no injustice to Jesus' teaching. Ye have not elected me, but I have elected you. Jesus teaches that this election, this choosing, is of definite individuals specific persons. The text teaches that. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That's definite. That's personal. Election is not some vague, indefinite decision of God that, yes, there will be those who are saved without any specification of who will be saved and who will not be saved. That's not biblical election. That's not Jesus' teaching in the words of our text for this morning. I have chosen you. Definite persons. Very specific individuals. In the second place, Jesus teaches in the text that he has chosen and he has ordained us from eternity. From eternity past. That's indicated in several ways in the text. That's indicated, first of all, when Jesus says very deliberately, not, I choose you, but he says, I have chosen you. That's past tense. That refers to something that took place in the past, and that past, of course, is an eternal past. That's indicated also in the text by the fact that the one who speaks, who says, 
I have chosen you is the second person of the ever-blessed Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God in our flesh. Since it is the eternal Son of God who speaks here of having chosen us, it's clear that his choice of us is from eternity. And the text teaches that Jesus' choice of us is eternal when he speaks of our bringing forth fruit. And the relationship between our bringing forth fruit and our election. Our election is first. Our election is prior to our bringing forth fruit. Our bringing forth fruit is the goal and purpose of our having been elected. The very fact that we have been elected and ordained in order to bring forth fruit, bringing forth fruit in time and history, in our lifetimes, indicates that Jesus Christ has chosen us eternally. In the third place, the choosing that Jesus speaks of in the text is his choosing of us unto salvation. Salvation with all the blessings and all the benefits that are part of God's great salvation. It is not so as those who attempt to evade the force of Jesus' teaching in the text that he's talking only about some earthly distinction that his ordaining and choosing is not unto salvation but unto some earthly privileges, some earthly office or calling. They contend that what Jesus is talking about in the text is his choosing of the twelve to be his disciples in a special sense. But that undermines the very truth that Jesus teaches in the text, that he has chosen some men unto salvation itself. That's plain from the fact that he's chosen these people to be in association with him, to belong to him, those of whom he is Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. He will lay down his life for those whom God has chosen and given unto him. Clearly, Jesus is speaking in the text of ordination unto salvation. This is also plain from the fact that the fruit produced by those who are chosen is fruit that endures. That's what Jesus says about that fruit and that your fruit should remain after this world perishes after this world in fire from God is renewed and all things made new, even then your fruit shall remain. It shall remain into all eternity. Jesus clearly is talking about ordination unto salvation. This choice of us by Christ is gracious. Jesus underscores that. He emphasizes that the cause of his election of us is always his free and his sovereign grace. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
That is the only explanation. The gracious character of Christ's election of us is emphasized in the text by the fact that they who are chosen are chosen in order that they should bring forth fruit. That implies that apart from this choosing by God and by Christ, they do not bring forth fruit. They're fruitless, altogether fruitless. They're not chosen, therefore, because they have brought forth fruit. They're not chosen, therefore, because the abundance of fruit that they have produced that now inclines God to choose them. No, the fruit that they produce is the result of God's having chosen them. And that means that his choice of them is altogether gracious. They're dead in trespasses and sins by nature. Those whom God chooses are totally unworthy of his choosing of them. Those whom he chooses are no different than those whom he does not choose. Those whom he casts off in his wrath. Those who in the end are consumed in everlasting judgment. His choice of us has nothing to do with us ourselves. It's a matter of grace, free and sovereign grace. And this choice of some men unto salvation is a choice of us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the elect of God. We who are God's elect are elect in the elect in Jesus Christ. Although there's no basis in us for God's choosing of us, there is a basis, and that basis is found in Jesus Christ. His doing and his dying on our behalf. That's indicated in a very striking way in the text. According to the text, it is Christ himself who has chosen us. Ye have not chosen me, he says, but I have chosen you. Now, God's choice of us is the work of the triune God, the will and decision of God triune to choose us. But Jesus can say, I have chosen you, not only because he is the second person, of the Trinity, but because we are chosen in him, because of him, on the basis of his finished work. And now, that choice of God is discriminating. This, too, is the clear teaching of the text. That God does not choose all to salvation, but some, some, only. In the words of the Canons of Dort, what peculiarly tends to illustrate and recommend the unmerited grace of election is that not all, but some only, are elected, while others are passed by in the eternal decree of God. This is what we call 
reprobation. Reprobation is God's eternal decree, appointing some men unto everlasting destruction, some certain human beings. They are rejected by God, and they are rejected from the salvation of God. Those reprobated deserve the punishment that they shall suffer eternally on account of their unbelief and all their other sins. God does not owe them or any one of us salvation. Reprobation shows the absolute sovereignty of God. God does as he wills with those who are his. Some vessels of clay he makes to honor a beautiful vase, let us say, while others to destruction. Vessels of shame and dishonor, let's say, in ashtrays. That is the will of the potter. Theoretically, God could, of course, have chosen everyone, every human being. Theoretically, he's God. He can do as he wills. But don't forget that theoretically, God could also have chosen to save no one. No one. He was obligated, not at all, to save any of us. He didn't either. For the display both of his justice and of his mercy, he reprobated some. He elected others. Now, the accusation is often made against this truth of reprobation that we Calvinists depend way too much on human logic and that the doctrine of reprobation is something that we deduce logically from Scripture. After te teaching systematic theology for 18 years, I'm thankful that God's truth is logical. It is. But we don't teach any truth, certainly not the truth of reprobation, because it's logical, but because it is the express teaching of the word of God. And it is. We have that expressed testimony in our text. For first of all, the very word inspired by the Holy Spirit for chosen in the text, elect, is a word. The word that's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament scriptures that means not just to choose, but to choose out of. And that implies that there's something remaining. There's something there that's not chosen. They who are chosen are chosen out of. That's the word in our text. And that Greek word comes directly over into our English language. Elect. Elect. The first part of that word is the out of, to choose, out of. And that's what we do in an election. That's what you did in the last presidential election. A slate of nominees. And out of all the possible nominees, you chose one and voted for that 
one. That's election. The text clearly teaches reprobation also when the text is understood in the light of the rest of the chapter. Reprobation is very much on the foreground in Jesus' teaching throughout the chapter. Already the second verse, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. There are branches that do not bear fruit and are taken away. They're cut off and then they're burned. That comes out also in verse 7. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you. That implies that there are some who do not abide in him and in whom his word do not abide. Verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. There's a world out there in distinction from you, you who are my elect people. You're not part of that world, that reprobate, wicked world out of which you have been called. And verse 21, but all these things will they do unto you. For my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. He's talking there about the reprobate wicked. He's talking there about their hatred of the elect and their determination to destroy and persecute God's elect. The express teaching of Holy Scripture concerning the truth of reprobation found in our text, is supported by the rest of Scripture. I quote a couple of passages. Proverbs 16, verse 4, speaks of the fact that God has made the wicked for the day of evil. He's made them for the day of evil. 1 Peter 2, verse 8, teaches that there are those who stumble at the word of God being disobedient to that word, whereunto also they were appointed. And in Jude 4, we read of certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men who bring into the church heresy, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude says about them, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. What Jesus emphasizes about the truth of gracious election in our text is its unconditionality. That it is unconditional. The Reformed faith has always emphasized this about election. That election is unconditional. If some of the young people in catechism have learned the tulip mnemonic, the memory device, for remembering the five points of Calvinism. What does the U of TULIP stand for? Not just election, but unconditional election. That distinguishes the election taught by the Reformed. We've had to do that. The Reformed have had to add that qualifying word to election. Unconditional. They've had to do that, you see, because the enemies of the Reformed faith, the enemies of the Reformed faith at the time of the Synod of Dort said, oh yes, we teach predestination, oh yes. We hold to election, of course we do but they meant by it something quite different than the election of Scripture. 
the false teaching of the Armenians was that they taught a conditional election. According to the teaching of the Armenians, God, as it were, looked into his giant crystal ball and he saw down the corridors of time who would believe on him, who would accept Jesus Christ as their savior and those people he chose. Their election was conditioned on their faith conditional election and set our fathers at door. No, that teaching undermines the gospel itself for the grace of God in salvation is unconditional. In a very clear way, the text opposes the view that election is conditional. And in a very clear way, so clear that the children, the children in the congregation this morning can understand this truth, that we are not chosen because of anything that we are or do. God does not choose us because of who we are. Ye have not chosen me, says Jesus, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Now, Jesus does not mean to teach here that we do not choose him, that we do not choose Jesus Christ. Jesus does not mean to teach in the text that in no sense of the word, and absolutely, we do not choose him. Jesus isn't denying by his teaching in the text the validity, the importance, the necessity of our choosing Jesus Christ. But, Jesus' concern in the text is with whose choice is first and whose choice is decisive and whose choice follows upon and is the fruit of the other that's Jesus' concern in the text. The teaching of the passage is that we choose Jesus Christ, but we choose Jesus Christ because he has chosen us. Our choice of Jesus Christ is the fruit of his sovereign choice of us. That's the clear teaching of the text. Christ's choice of us is not dependent at all on our choice of him. His choice is unconditional. Our choice depends on his choice. And in the original Greek of the text, that's very emphatic. Jesus means to underscore that and to emphasize it. In the original, the negative comes first in the text. Not have ye chosen me, but I have chosen you. Not have ye chosen me. The second part of the text also underscores the unconditionality 
of Christ's choice of us. In the text, Jesus goes on to say not only that he has chosen us, but that he has ordained us that we should go and bring forth fruit. We've been ordained, but we've been ordained in order that we should bring forth fruit. We're not ordained because of our fruit bearing. No, absolutely not. We're dead. How can a dead tree produce living fruit? But we have been ordained in order that the life of Christ may be imparted to us and we may bring forth fruit. The last part of verse 5 is instructive. For without me, ye can do nothing. In verse 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Now, Continue ye in my love. Our election is unconditional. Now make that personal this morning. God has not chosen you God has not chosen you, young people, children, parents, the older members of the church. He's not chosen you because of anything that you are or that you have done. puts us all on the same level here, doesn't it? It puts us all on the same level, unworthy, dead, sinners, everyone. There's not one person in the congregation this morning who has it over another person in the congregation. Humble even before the world because we're no better than they by nature. They know worse than we are. That's not the reason why we've been elected. That's not the reason why God has reprobated them. It's humbling. That's exactly God's purpose in this God knows how great our need is for genuine humility before him and each other. And there's no truth like the truth of unconditional election that humbles each of us. In the text, Jesus not only teaches the great truth of election and not only emphasizes its unconditional nature, but he also points to the great purpose of God in electing us. And that's the last part of the verse, that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he 
may give it you. Jesus points out that the truth of election in no way destroys a life of holiness on the part of God's people. That's often the charge that's made against the truth that we've considered this morning. That teach the truth of election. Tell people that their salvation does not depend on their works, what they do, the kind of life they live, and they're going to all live like devils. They're not going to do good works. They're going to live wickedly and worldly. My response to that is no. No. We reject that charge. Absolutely. Nor does it follow in any way from the truth of gracious election. It doesn't follow because the very purpose of our election is that we should bring forth fruit. Bring forth fruit. fruit doesn't exist and isn't produced for its own sake. But it's produced for the sake of another who enjoys that fruit, who benefits from that fruit, who eats that fruit. That's the idea. And in reality, People of God who have been chosen by Jesus Christ unto eternal salvation, whose sins have been paid for in his precious blood, are motivated by love and gratitude to bring forth fruit, to show their thankfulness to God for so great a salvation. And then in the two ways that the text speaks of, you really have the two parts of the gratitude section of the Heidelberg Catechism in that last part of verse 16. That whatsoever ye shall ask, that's prayer. That is the highest, the greatest expression of our gratitude, direct speech to God, and then the bringing forth of fruit, which is good works, the keeping of his commandments. At the same time, in the goodness and grace of God, he causes us to enjoy the assurance of our election. He doesn't just elect us unto salvation, but we live all our lifetime in doubt and fear and uncertainty until finally we die and open our eyes and we're in heaven and we made it. Not that. But God is pleased that his children know his love for them and live in the assurance of his love for them just as you want your children to all their life long. Oh yes, there are times when we wrestle with fears and with doubts and great sorrows and tragedies come into our lives. But when we've fallen into some grievous sin. But that's not the Christian life. Christian life is life lived in the assurance of God's favor. God's love. 
God's election. We enjoy that assurance not by flying up into heaven and peering into God's book of life, but the way to that assurance is to observe in our lives the fruits of election, the fruits mentioned in the text. Do you choose Jesus Christ? Do you choose to follow him faithfully as his disciple keeping his commandments? Did you choose to come to church this morning to hear him and to worship him? Is that your delight? Be assured that you are his and that he has chosen you. Is your life a life committed to doing good works, living faithfully in your marriage, living faithfully with respect to your parents, your peers at school? That's the fruit of election. Do you pray? Do you pray to God sincerely? Do you pray to him? In the name of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, pleading his work and his merits, then know, know that this is the fruit in you of God's electing grace. He's chosen you. And then know one more thing. The work of grace that he began, he preserved and he perfects until the day of Christ's coming. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we're thankful and we're humbled by the truth of thy word. We thank thee for the electing grace which thou hast shown to us and for the fruits of that election in our lives. We recognize that we deserve none of this. None of it. And so we're thankful. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that the good work of grace which thou hast begun in us and in our children, and in our young people, that will preserve to the very end. For Jesus' sake, amen.